following lecture was produced by the Gnostic Academy of Chicago, a nonprofit organization, and is one of many available for podcast, download, and transcription. You can visit chicagonosis.org to find courses, articles, scriptures, commentaries, and other valuable resources that address a wide variety of spiritual subjects, interests, and needs. Through the generous support of listeners like you, the Gnostic Academy of Chicago has produced online courses, lectures, and articles freely available worldwide. If you have benefited from this knowledge, help humanity through making a tax-deductible donation at chicagonosis.org. If you are interested in attending the Gnostic Academy of Chicago in person, you may view our online class schedule and freely register at meetup.com slash chicagonosis. The Chicagoland Gnostic Academy provides humanity with the necessary means for transforming suffering and acquiring personal knowledge of the divine. With this purpose in mind, we now begin the lecture. May all beings be happy. Esoteric discipline of mind. I felt it was would be good for the new year to really analyze what meditation is and to really study it in a didactic manner. Because as we say in this tradition, meditation is the, the daily bread of the, of the Gnostic. It is our daily practice. And without understanding how to meditate, how to experience the reality of our being, we in turn cannot experience the reality of our being. And so I wanted to really touch upon what this science is and how to really effectively practice. Because without meditation, we cannot attain anything. Some people think that meditation is a means to have experiences, which is partially true. To be able to speak directly to God, our being, such as in an astral experience or out of the body. But the truth is, according to Samael and Vior, he stated that when we meditate, what we seek is information. We seek to know to investigate, to discern our uh, internal states, any scripture we are studying, and more importantly, our defects. So as he says in the Great Rebellion, in life the only thing of importance is a radical, total, and definitive change. The rest, frankly, is of no importance at all. Meditation is fundamental when we sincerely yearn for such a change. In no way do we want a type of meditation that is insignificant, superficial, or in vain. We must become serious and abandon the nonsense that abounds in cheap pseudo-esotericism and pseudo-occultism. 
we must know how to take things seriously, how to change. And what we really and truly want is not to fail in the esoteric work. This is probably, for me, one of the most poignant statements in that book. We have to learn how to really take things seriously, meaning we have to really dedicate our time and our effort to understand what, it is, what does it mean to meditate. It's a mysterious science that we cannot comprehend in its depth without the balance of study and practice. And that's beautifully illustrated in this image. So in the center we have Chen Rizik, which is Christ, otherwise known as uh, Avalokiteshvara. To his right, we see Manjushri wielding a sword. And uh, in his left hand, he has a scripture. So typically in Tibetan Buddhist paintings, in the Mahayana or Vajrayana tradition, we find Manjushri wielding the sword of perception in order to cut through delusion. So that sword, while representing the Kundalini, is really uh, a representation of how with our perception we need to cut through illusion. So as the Master Samayal explained, we need to learn how to... uh, We need to uh, learn how to receive information. So we need to learn how to perceive, to know ourselves. The fact that the sword represents prajna, perception, wisdom, is uh, really uh, integral and emphatic of how we can experience our being. Prajna in Sanskrit means wisdom. And wisdom means, is, comes from the etymological, vis-dom, vision and dom, kingdom, the power or power, the power to perceive. What's important is that in his left hand, he also carries a scripture. So on the right hand, he has practice, he has effort, daily, daily exercises and meditation and practice, cutting through the illusions of self. And in his left hand, he has scripture, meaning we need to balance our knowledge and our being, as the Master Samael explains in, the, I believe, in either Great Rebellion or Revolutionary Psychology. Now, uh, it, is inc- it is completely impossible to experience the being, the innermost, the reality, without becoming true technical and scientific masters of that mysterious science called meditation. It is completely impossible to experience the being, the innermost, the reality, without having reached the true mastery of the quietude and silence of the mind. So this is, again, beautifully emphasized in this image. For... Manjushri representing uh, occult wisdom. We have uh, Mahakala on the left of uh, Chen Rizig, surrounded by flames. In Tantra, he's known as a wrathful deity. Maha means great. Kala reminds us of Kali, the goddess of death in Hinduism. He represents severity of the gods, a wrathful energy which is directed towards the pulverization, uh, pulverization of the ego and really demonstrates for us the type of willpower that we need if we want to really conquer ourselves. 
So in order to know Christ, our inner, our, even our inner Buddha, our inner being, we need to cultivate wisdom, prania, perception, and uh, work with the sexual energy. Because that fire illuminating Mahakala is uh, representative of, uh, of the Holy Spirit, the sexual power, which when we harness for our consciousness can pulverize our ego. For if we use that sexual energy in a chaste way, Mahakala then works in us to pulverize our defects. But if we are lustful and if we fornicate, Mahakala turns on us because we are establishing and fortifying our ego. And notice in the center of the image we have uh, Chen Razik holding a prayer bead. And now these are used for japa meditation, mantra recitation, and represents remembrance. So to know God, we need to really work with discernment, prana, wisdom, to perceive ourselves, and to always cultivate the use of the sexual power. Now, uh, in this next image, we have a Sufi master praying to his innermost, or his inner Christ, Allah, signified by the Arabic letters. Now, we emphasize that when we meditate, what we seek is to know and really extract information from any given object of concentration. Now, to experience the truth is fundamental, and it's not by means of the exertion that we can experience the truth. So many people think when they sit to meditate that, they're, that they have to strain their mind or that when they practice, it's like a checklist. First, I need to concentrate, then I need to do this, then I need to do this, and really make it a rigid system when it's really a dynamic and fluidic process. We don't need effort, exertion to exert the mind to know God. The truth is not the result. The truth is not the, is not the product of exertion. The truth comes to us by means of profound comprehension. And so this is really what we seek, is to comprehend. But we don't do it with the mind. And our mind is our chief obstacle, in which we uh, typically have this assumption, and many Westerners assume that when, we medit- when meditating we take this habit of our, our Western society into our practice where we're thinking all the time or trying to resolve a problem with the intellect. What comprehension comes to us when we don't think, when we cease to, or when we cease or exhaust the process of rationalization. Now, we need to exert ourselves in order to work in the great work and to transmute our creative energies, meaning to work with Mahakala, Bina, the Holy Spirit, we need to exert ourselves to live, to struggle, and to tread the path of the integral revolution, but we do not need to exert ourselves in order to comprehend the truth. And as we've explained many times, comprehension is that spark in which we see things in a completely new way. So when we sit to meditate and we analyze what our state of mind is, if we do not taste that flavor of a new perception. It means that our mind is uh, murky. It's uh, diluted. When actually this type of perception of Manjushri, the sword of perception, is uh, very clear, pristine, cognizant. 
without filters. And this, of course, comes in levels. But Manjushri, you see that he's holding the sword and we think that, well, when someone goes to battle, they need to exert themselves. And physically, this is true. But when we go to war against ourselves, our ego, when we comprehend and self-observe our inner defects, we don't need to exert ourselves because that's the mind. Comprehension is that intuitive insight which arrives when we see our defects or see e-defect in action and we don't uh, rationalize, justify it or condemn it. We see it for what it is. And this is really the beginning. Chastity and perception. Sexual purity and uh, prana, wisdom to perceive. So comprehension of any defect in meditation does not, is not, uh, does not require that we exert ourselves in any way. When we stop thinking, when we are just open to the new, then insight comes. But willpower is necessary in these teachings too. So there's an interesting dynamic that this relates to, which is uh, very beautifully explained in uh, Al-Uris Salah by a uh, Sufi master, Al-Kushari. Irada, the will to find God, is the beginning of the path of spiritual travelers. The first title given to those who are determined to reach God Most High. This attribute is only called irada because will is the preface to every undertaking. When the servant does not will, he does not carry out. Since this is is the start of the enterprise of one who travels the path of God Almighty and Glorious, it is called will by analogy to the resolution involved at the beginning of everything else. Now Manjushri, it seems like he's using effort to cut through illusion. In the beginning for us, when we sit to meditate, we need to exert efforts in our consciousness to pay attention, not the mind. Exertion is of the mind, but we need a type of uh, conscious effort in order to restrain our, our thoughts and our mind in the moment. And so the type of willpower that the Sufis are talking here relates to, our, uh, relates to Tifereth and Kabbalah the human soul. So the human soul has to exert itself to transmute and to uh, remember the mean. But the further, the more that we develop our consciousness, the the less effort it takes. And I remember the case of the Master Samael Onveor who stated that in the beginning of his work, he had to exert tremendous efforts to remember himself. And to travel out of his body to go to the superior worlds. Later, um, since his center of gravity shifted from Klipot, having annihilated those defects, it was then placed in really the superior worlds. So then he said, well, now it takes me tremendous effort to stay in my physical body because I always want to travel to other dimensions while he's talking and doing other things. But... For him, to, to be in the superior worlds does not take effort. And that's the type of uh, development that we can all acquire, where it doesn't take effort to go out of our body. We don't have to, it isn't, um, it isn't difficult. So exertion, again, I emphasize, is of the mind, but we need willpower. So there, there's a balance here, and there's a seemingly a contradiction, as the Sufis pointed out. 
According to etymology, the disciple is he who possesses will, just as the knower is he who possesses knowledge, because the word belongs to the class of derived nouns. But in Sufi usage, the disciple is he who possesses no will at all. Here, uh, one who does not abandon will cannot be called the disciple, just as linguistically, one who does not possess will cannot be called a disciple. So the meaning of this is, if you think about the story of Jesus, he said, Father, if it be possible, take this cup from me of bitterness, but not my will, but thine be done. So we need to do with the will of our being. That means that we have no will of our own, but it's then our innermost acting through us. But in the beginning, we need to have discipline, willpower to meditate and to practice every day if what we want to experience is the being. So uh, remember that Christ in his crucifixion, <clears throat> he wore the crown of thorns, which is a representation of willpower. Christ's will. We don't need egotistical will. We need Christ's will. So that's the explanation of the, this dichotomy. We need willpower, but we don't need willpower. We really need Christ's will, but we don't, we don't need egotistical exertions in our mind. So that, we'll never know God that way. Exactly. We need willpower in our, in, our, in our consciousness. Willpower in Kabbalah is Tifereth, the center of the tree of life, the heart. And it is by our heart that we are defined. So to know God, we need to, you know, we need to cease thinking. But we need, we need discipline in our consciousness. And there's a, there's a saying in the Great Rebellion that uh, that uh, we can only awaken the consciousness based on conscious efforts and voluntary sufferings. He says, no matter how much you exert mechanical energy in your physical body, we will never awaken our soul. Neither if we transmute for, or we work with vital energy extensively, that alone will not awaken our consciousness. Neither if we work with psychic energy, astral, emotional forces, that alone, even if, even if we multiply those forces to infinity, that won't awaken us. Same thing with mental energy, netzach, mind. Even if we exert ourselves in mental disciplines of a very severe type, that won't awaken us. Neither if we multiply our willpower a million times, such as being a, like a fakir, sleeping on a bed of nails. And going back to the four ways, we find that the monk works with emotional energy, singularly, exclusively. The yogi works with the mind, and the fakir works with willpower and mechanical energy. That alone will not awaken any, anything in us. But if we work with our consciousness through conscious efforts and voluntary sufferings, meaning we, really are, we work with our being to exert our consciousness, excuse me, consciousness to work, that is how we awaken and perceive something new. And uh, that's when all the other lower sephiroth, they work in conjunction with the consciousness. Because the consciousness needs to know how to use willpower, to breath, the mind, emotions, vitality, etc. So these things help us to... Uh, so we need that type of discipline, which is not subjective, but something that we can only verify by really practicing it.
So the foundations of uh, this direct perception pertains to uh, that sword of Manjushri, discernment. We find here that in this image of the, the Christ holding a child. And uh, we emphasize many times that we need to have the mind of a child. To be really simple and not uh, constantly rationalizing or intellectualizing in a daily basis, on a moment-to-moment basis. Children don't argue, debate, theorize, believe. They simply know. Especially at a young age, many children are very clairvoyant before, they have, before their ego integrates into their psyche as they develop their personality. So the discernment is the direct perception of the truth without the process of conceptual selection. When the process of selection divides the mind between the battle of the antitheses, then the internal images are hidden like stars behind the stormy clouds of reasoning. You must learn to think with the heart and feel with the head. So this is the wisdom of the heart, the heart doctrine, in which we will learn to become real masters of meditation. To think with the heart and not to let our mind ramble or label or identify things every moment. If we find meditation is difficult, it's because throughout our day we, are struggling, we, we struggle with this problem where the intellect is too active. The way that we pacify the intellect is that we learn to think with the heart and to feel with the head. Our mind must become exquisitely sensitive and delicate. The mind must liberate itself from all types of bonds in order to comprehend life, free in its movement. So we, all, we emphasize, or the Master Samael emphasizes, that thought should flow serenely like a river in the jungle. It doesn't mean that we don't necessarily stop thinking. <clears throat> it means that the intellect does not abuse, I mean, the ego does not abuse our intellectual center. Where uh, if we are very observant, we'll see that how the ego really abuses the energies of the, of the intellect, the mind. And the only way that we can know that is by discerning that, how that ego functions in a given instant. So it needs to be sensitive and delicate so that it can be an instrument of God. So we can see that in this image, Christ here is Chen Razig, is holding... Uh, the soul in his, on his lap because Christ the being is the master and uh, the child is our, our consciousness. We admire boldness. Meaning we need to really have a lot of willpower again to be bold. To really have the courage to go against the entire current that is swallowing this humanity and which, on a daily, moment-to-moment basis, tempts us and pulls us to suffer and to go with the flow. Desires of all types are bonds for the mind. Prejudice and preconception are bonds for the understanding. Schools are cages where the mind remains a prisoner. Meaning, uh, not only referring to you know, physical schools, but spiritual groups and the only purpose of a group is to teach you how to meditate to really learn how to practice unfortunately there's a tendency in many groups to 
feel that having a large number of students or a large group means that what, that the people are successful, the practitioners are successful. But that's a really an, uh, a, her, a herd mentality. And typically, a lot of these individuals treat spiritual groups as a social club. But uh, the problem is students need to, or we all need, we, everyone needs to learn how to meditate. Otherwise, uh, uh, flag, country, politics, beliefs, religion, groups, these are structures which limit our understanding of really investigating seriously our psyche. We must always learn to live in the present because life is always an internal instant. Our mind must convert itself into a flexible and delicate instrument of the innermost for the innermost. Our mind must convert itself into a child. This is from uh, Igneous Rose. So if we uh, remember Jesus in the Gospels was riding on the donkey into the heavenly Jerusalem. It refers to how we need to dominate our mind. So when we, uh, the way that we do so, how we develop esoteric discipline of mind is precisely in, uh, it's given in different ways, the practice of meditation is given in different ways, uh, such as by Patanjali, or uh, in this more synthesized version by Samael and Vior. So Oriental wisdom practices meditation in the following order. Asana, which is posture of the body. Pratyahara, thinking in nothing. Dharana, concentration on only one thing. Dhyana, profound meditation. Samadhi, ecstasy. So dhyana, or, uh, dhyana refers to when we are extracting information and perceiving something new about the object of our concentration. And samadhi is comprehension. To, see, to perceive without the ego. Because the word ecstasy comes from ex statuo in Latin, meaning to stand uh, outside oneself, to stand outside one's subjective perception, the ego. So it is necessary to place the body in the most comfortable position, asana. It is indispensable to blank the mind before concentrating, pratyahara. And uh, typically, when people most, when most people begin meditation, or have been attempting this for years. These are the two difficulties that everybody faces. First, the body is uncomfortable. We want to move. We want to adjust ourselves. Or if we do find a position that's comfortable, the mind continues to think and to talk and a lot and talk and to uh, chatter. So we need to learn how to have a silent mind, which is one of the first steps to learning how to concentrate. Many people try to meditate without knowing how to concentrate, without knowing how to quiet their mind, without having any type of stability in that manner. So it is urgent to know how to fix the mind on only one object, which is concentration, dharana. Then we profoundly reflect on the content of the object itself, which is dhyana. Thus, through this way, we reach ecstasy, samadhi, or comprehension. All of these esoteric disciplines of the mind must saturate our daily life, so, these practices have to be implemented in every second of our existence. We need to have a discipline of observing ourselves moment by moment. Because if we don't, then when we sit to meditate, the mind is in chaos.
Now, uh, a quote from you saying by Swami Shivananda, who's a great resurrected master in this tradition, the importance of uh, following these steps. If you want samadhi, you must know well the process of dhyana, meditation. If you want dhyana, meditation, you must know accurately the method of dharana, concentration. If you want dharana, concentration, you must know perfectly the method of pratyahara, silence of mind. If you want pratyahara, you must know pranayama, sexual transmutation. If you, must, if you want pranayama, you must know asana well, posture. Before going to the practice of asana, you should have yama and niyama. Yama means to, uh, to do, or niyama means to... Uh, yama can also mean precept, I believe. Precepts and to do or not to do. One's ethical discipline. There's no use jumping into dhyana meditation without having the various preliminary practices. So yama niyama means good and bad action, meaning the Ten Commandments or the Ten, or the ten Virtuous or the Ten Non-Meritorious Actions of Buddhism, meaning don't consume intoxicants, don't fornicate is the primary one. Never abuse this sexual energy, never steal, commit adultery, kill, Things on a physical level which are very basic. But psychologically, these are things that we do all the time. And the only way to really access even having a, a body that's still, we need to know have, or have discipline in our daily life. Because if uh, one attempts, or many, there are many people who attempt meditation <clears throat> while continuing to fornicate. And the problem with that is those energies being expelled, the mind becomes turbulent. One can't even sit down to meditate. The body is, is easily agitated. So that's a preliminary step. So if you want success in meditation, you need to really fulfill, we need to really fulfill yama and niyama. Uh, precepts and restraints of one's mind. So the great ascetics of meditation are the great sannyasin of the cosmic understanding whose flames glow within the igneous rose of the universe. It is urgent to acquire absolute chastity, tenacity, serenity, <clears throat> and patience in order to be a sannyasin of a mind. So this is the foundation. Physically, we need to learn how to be chaste. We need to learn how to have tenacity in our practices. We need to learn how to be serene even in the, in the most difficult circumstances. And we need to learn how to be patient to endure suffering. As uh, Master Abramento in this image represents in uh, the Garden of the Gethsemane before he was uh, for the beginning of his passion. So it all begins by... Um, developing sexual purity, willpower, peace of heart and mind, and the endurance to consciously suffer the consequences of our previous actions, meaning that we learn to endure suffering 
So it's a very enigmatic statement by the Master Samael, but something that we need to really come to know in depth, where he says, we must, consciousness can only awaken through conscious efforts and voluntary sufferings. Meaning we have to, doesn't mean that we go into looking for problems, that we get ourselves in trouble. It means that in our particular circumstances, in our daily life, we learn to suffer willingly when we get criticized or our pride is hurt, to feel that sense of discomfort, psychologically speaking, and to not run away from it. But to remain, but as the Master Samuel explains, there is the need to remain indifferent before praise and slander, before triumph and failure. Meaning, we suffer when someone criticizes, we see the impression of someone insulting us, and our pride is hurt. We have to willingly suffer the, the consequences of having created that, that pride, that shame in our psyche, and to extract our understanding from it, to see it in action. So our conscious efforts are when we are separating ourselves into observer and observed. We have to see ourselves for what we are. It is necessary to change the process of reasoning for the beauty of comprehension. So when, the more that we develop pratyahara, silence of mind, comprehension is spontaneous. It comes without any exertion, any effort. It comes to us when we cease thinking. But uh, the only way that we can cease thinking or uh, over-rationalizing is again working with uh, sexual power. Because before prana, uh, pratyahara, we work with pranayama, mantra. And before that, we have to maintain our vow of, uh, of chastity. In order to become a master of samadhi, it is urgent to cultivate a rich interior life. And it sounds pessimistic if we are really honest and we observe our psychology throughout the day. What does it mean to have a rich interior life? To be rich psychologically is when we are comprehending ourselves. When we are filled with understanding of the causes of our suffering. If we go throughout a day not perceiving what in us makes us suffer, it means that we're poor. And uh, this is not the meaning of the, the of those who are the uh, poor in spirit who are blessed. Instead, to be rich psychologically speaking is to be working in our in ourselves. The Gnostic who does not know how to smile has less control of himself like the one who only knows the guffaw of Aristophanes. So I know many people, they enter these studies and they think that, what? Because this teaching is very potent and strong. Oh, one has no sense of humor. But uh, the, there are many people who enter these type of studies and who don't know how to enjoy life, which is completely against the point. So it's ironic that we need to learn how to consciously suffer, but at the same time, that produces our happiness. Meaning, the more that we separate from our ego, the more joy we spontaneously and naturally develop. 
And uh, as Samael and Vior says, the greatest joy of the Gnostic is the discovery of one of his defects. So even though there's suffering in that moment if someone condemns us or really hurts our self-esteem, but if we observe that self-esteem in action, we see it for what it is and understand it for what it is, there's a, there's libera- a sense of liberation. And say, okay, now I'm going to go home and I'm going to meditate on this, this defect that came up so that my Divine Mother will annihilate it. And there's tremendous peace and joy in that. And for me, there's no greater happiness than to catch my mind as in the moment that it's suffering and to extract my soul or to see my defects in action and to really perceive that I have a choice or that we have a choice to follow our own will or the will of our being. And that produces genuine happiness. That makes us peaceful. But uh, the opposite is those who laugh like the Kafa of Aristophanes who are saturated with, with, uh, with desire. There's the need to achieve complete control of ourselves. An initiate can feel happiness, but he will never fall into the frenzy or mad- of madness. An initiate can feel sadness, but he will never reach desperation. He who is desperate about the death of a beloved being still does not serve as an initiate, because death is the crown of everyone. So this pertains to our ethical discipline. So there's an image of Shiva meditating behind the mountain of initiation, the Holy Spirit sitting upon the cloth of a, or the fur of a tiger, which is the animal eagle that's been annihilated in, in meditation. So Swami Shivananda gives some very thorough advice in his book Kundalini Yoga about the benefit or what we need to do for our asana. When you sit on the pot, in a posture, think, I am as firm as a rock. Give this suggestion to the mind half a dozen times. Then the asana will become steady soon, meaning we won't shift or try to adjust our posture. You must become as a living statue when you sit for dhyana. Don't move. If you're moving, you're not meditating. If you're scratching an itch, getting discomfort, we're not meditating. And as Samuel and Vera explains, um, we need to be absolutely still. And people, people ignore this instruction typically because the, the thing is, he's referring not only to mental silence but physical stillness. We can't be mentally at an equipose if uh, we're moving our body. Then only there will be real steadiness in your asana. In one year by regular practice, you will have success and will be able to sit for three hours at a stretch. Start with half an hour and gradually increase the period. When you sit in the asana, keep your head, neck, and trunk in one straight line. Stick to one asana and make it quite steady and perfect by repeated attempts. Never change the asana. Adhere to one tenaciously. As the Master Samaya also emphasized, we need tenacity in our practice. Realize the full benefits of one asana. So for some of us, for me, it's sitting in a chair. Or uh, in my home, I use my bed. I sit against the wall, my legs out. For me, that's the most comfortable posture where I can concentrate without getting distracted or letting myself fall asleep. And so when we pick an asana, it can be lying down, it can be sitting in a chair, it can be 
sitting in the full lotus. What matters is that we do we pick a, a position, excuse me, and we are consistent with it. Realize the full benefits of one asana. Asana gives dridata strength. Mudra gives stitrata steadiness. Pratyahara gives dairiya boldness. And as Samael says, we admire boldness. Pranayama gives lagima lightness. Dhyana gives pratyakshatva perception of self. And samadhi gives kaivalya uh, isolation, which is the, verily the freedom or final beatitude. So pratyakshatva is perception of the sword of Manjushri in which we cut through illusion. And so what's interesting is that with samadhi, we have isolation. When we uh, are diligent in our practice, we may have the grace and experience of, of a samadhi in which we are united with our being, meaning our consciousness gets absorbed in our innermost or in our, in our inner Christ. And uh, this produces isolation. People, usually in the West, we think isolation is, oh, he's, he's not feeling well and he's socially uh, um, or antisocial, better said. Isolation in this sense remains to hermetic silence, meaning one is not influenced by external phenomena, but is completely focused internally. So that's what it means to be isolated. And the way that we attain this type of uh, comprehension is if throughout the day we are psychologically isolated, meaning we don't uh, identify with any circumstance. We don't waste our energies. We become hermetically sealed. Which is the science of Mercury, the science of mind, the angel Raphael. So Swami Shivananda continues, He who has gained Pratyahara withdrawing the senses from the objects, will have a good concentration. You will have to march in the spiritual path step by step, stage by stage. Lay the foundation of of yama, niyama, asana, pranayama, and pratyahara to start with. The superstructure of dharana and dhyana will be be successful only then. So here we're explaining the uh, gradual steps of this process or the stages of meditation. So, uh, pratyahara means to withdraw your senses from uh, objects. Now, uh, we've included here a quote uh, from the Kata Upanishad, Hindu scripture, uh, emphasizing the nature of uh, Kabbalah in, relation, uh, in our psychology. And uh, this can help us to understand more about the... Nature of pratyahara, dharana, silence of mind and concentration. Know the self, Atman, or chesed in Kabbalah, as one sitting in the chariot. The body is the chariot. The intellect, the translation really is a buddhi, or should be translated to buddhi, the consciousness, divine consciousness. The intellect, the charioteer, and the mind, the reins. The senses, they say, are the horses. The objects of the senses, their path. When he, Atman, is in union with the body, the senses, and the mind, then wise people call him the enjoyer. Meaning when we uh, allow our inner being to act through us, then uh, he is 
uh, truly we enjoy it. We are filled with joy in, in, in uh, remembering the flow of life moment by moment in this instant. He who has no understanding in whose mind the rain is never firmly held, his senses, the horses, are unmanageable, like vicious horses of a charioteer. But he who has understanding in whose mind is always firmly held, his senses are under control, like good horses of a charioteer. He who has no understanding, who is unmindful and always impure, meaning fornicating, unchaste, never reaches that place, but enters into the realm of births. And some island Vero is more specific in saying that. Woe to the, char- woe to the coachman who loses control of his, of his chariot, meaning the chariot will, enter the, will fall off the cliff into the abyss, meaning if we're impure physically, psychologically, and we don't control and restrain our mind, then that will take us into successive incarnations into lower animal states, as we explained in the transmigration of souls. Until finally uh, entering to the abyss or uh, disintegrating in the infer- inferior dimensions. But he who has understanding, who is mindful and always pure, reaches indeed that place from whence he is not born again. But he who makes understanding his charioteer, understanding his Binah, the Holy Spirit, and who holds the reins of the mind, he reaches the end of his journey, and that is the highest place, the all-pervading self, or Brahman. I could say the Absolute. So in this image we have uh, the Lord Krishna with Arjuna in the Bhagavad Gita. Krishna represents Pranya, the innermost, or uh, better say we say Christ, our Lord. Arjuna is Tifereth, the human soul, of which we are a fraction. So Tifereth is uh, willpower, who is united here under the guidance of the, of the being. So we find this image, four horses and a chariot. Uh, specifically within, uh, the, within Krishna, we find, we could say we find Atman and uh, Buddhi, the divine soul and the innermost as well. The master is Christ and the human soul is identified as Arjuna. The mind must be united with his divine triad, meaning Atman, Buddhi, Manas, the spirit, the divine consciousness, and the human soul, together with the psychic extractions of the astral, vital, and physical vehicles. So we find the horses, we have four, which is the physical, vital, astral, and mental bodies. And uh, we, need, we need to learn to integrate those four horses at the service of our being. Typically in us, the horses are going in different directions. And our leading us on a rugged path. Instead, we need to discipline our mind precisely through these uh, stages of, of practice. So the interior manas together with the kamas, astral body, prana, vital body, and, lang- and langa, or linga, the physical body, enforce the divine triad by means of fire. So going back to the image of mahakala, the flame surrounding the, this being, we uh, unite our four lower sephiroth, physical body, vital body, astral body, mental body, with our inner being by means of kundalini, by means of the sacred fire. So in single practitioners, it's, we can make in sparks. But those who are married and are working with their partner and uh, 
maintaining chastity, that energy will can awaken and unite one with the Atman. But we need the we need sexual fire if we want to unite our lower Sephiroth with our being. And that's how the mind is restrained. Without that force, we can't uh, control the, the chariot. So a means to help us with this, we find in the Sufi scriptures. So this is a, a Sama, which is a spiritual concert of Sufi initiates. Again, this is a quote from Al-Risala, translated as Principles of Sufism by uh, Al-Kushari where he explains how uh, the way that we develop discernment is through self-remembering and through mantra recitation. So to develop strong concentration, we work with pranayama or we can work with mantra. And as you remember in the image of Chen Rizig, he's holding a prayer, prayer beads in his hand, signifying the step of remembrance. Remembrance is a powerful support on the path to God, glorious and majestic. Indeed, it is the very foundation of the Sufi path. No one reaches God save by continual remembrance of Him. There are two kinds of remembrance, that of the tongue and that of the heart. The servant attains perpetual remembrance of the heart by making vocal remembrance. It is remembrance of the heart, however, that yields true effect. When a person makes remembrance with his tongue and his heart simultaneously, he attains perfection in his wayfaring. Because that mantra, along with concentration and prayer to our being, takes that fire and unites it with our divine triad. So that our being, we help our being, as sacrilegious as that might sound, for him to help us to control our mind. A group of wayfarers complained to Abu Uthman we make vocal remembrance of God Most High, but we experience no sweetness in our hearts. And this is what many practitioners experience. We're, we'll be mantralizing, but we don't feel that, that rich, intuitive insight or, or inspiration from the practice. It means that if we're, if we're doing it mechanically, we don't feel that sweetness in our hearts. So the, this master advised, Give thanks to God Most High for adorning at least your limbs with obedience. Meaning, uh, yeah, you may not have deeper insight or experience with this mantra that you're working with, but give thanks to God that He's inspired you to practice so that through consistency every day, we can develop that sweetness and that uh, to really feel the energies present in pranayama or mantra. So uh, we find the following later stated. Part of the conduct proper to supplication is that is presence of heart, that you are not inattentive while you supplicate. It is related that the prophet said, God the Most High will not answer the supplication of a servant whose heart is heedless. So if we pray mechanically, we won't receive anything. But if we are sincere, then our uh, supplications, our, our practices will, be, will have fruit. And this is also beautifully exemplified in Shakespeare in Hamlet where um, King Claudius who just murdered his, he murdered his brother is praying in a church for his sins. But he doesn't really feel remorse for what he did. So he says, My words fly up to heaven 
My thoughts remain below. Words without thoughts never to heaven go. So same thing as the teachings of Prophet Muhammad. So again, we're using a lot of uh, images from the Bhagavad Gita. Again, we have Krishna talking to Arjuna. And uh, the Bhagavad Gita really explains for us the foundations of our practice. So these are other examples of what we need to do to really be successful in meditation. Let the yogi try constantly to keep the mind steady, remaining in solitude, alone, with the mind and the body controlled and free from hope and greed. So, here we're practicing as a group. Usually we'll practice alone, but the type of solitude they're referring to is psychological. Meaning we don't uh, let ourselves identify um, with any circumstance throughout the day. We need that hermetic silence in our, in our consciousness. In a clean spot, having established a firm seat of his own, neither too high nor too low, made of a cloth, a skin, and kusha grass, one over the other, there having made the mind one-pointed, which is, uh, you could say, pratyahara, to concentrate, or to silence of mind, to, to have one-pointed, or dharana, to have one-pointed concentration as well. With the actions of the mind and the senses controlled, let him, seated on the seat, practice yoga for the purification of the self. This is known as retrospection meditation in this tradition, in which we analyze our defects and annihilate them through comprehension and prayer to our Divine Mother. Let him firmly hold uh, his body, head and neck erect and perfectly still, meaning our asana, we don't move, gazing at the tip of his nose without looking around. Serene-minded, fearless, firm in the vow of a brahmachari, brahmacharya, meaning chastity, having controlled the mind, thinking of me and balanced in mind, let him sit having me as his supreme goal. So we observe ourselves, we find that we're usually not serene-minded. We're typically filled with fear and uh, our mind is not chaste, filled with lust. But chastity begins physically. We cannot learn to meditate at all if we are not firm in our vow of brahmacharya which means to be, uh, never to fornicate, ever. Thus, always keeping the mind balanced, the yogi with the mind controlled, attains to the peace abiding in me, which culminates in liberation. Verily, yoga is not possible for him who eats too much, nor for him who does not eat at all, nor for him who sleeps too much, nor for him who is always awake, O Arjuna. So we need balance in our daily life. Yoga becomes the destroyer of pain for him who is always moderate in eating and recreation, such as walking, etc. Who is moderate in exertion and actions. Who is moderate in sleep and wakefulness. When the perfectly controlled mind rests in the self only, free from longing from the objects of desire, then it is said he is united. Meaning, uh, as soon as we are free from any psychological obscuration in our mind, then samadhi emerges. As a lamp placed in the windless spot does not flicker, to such as compared the yogi of controlled mind, practicing yoga in the self, or absorbed in the yoga of the self. So as Samayalam Vyora stated, every practice should 
our esoteric discipline practices should saturate our daily life. So here I'm going to emphasize in relation to concentration, uh, Greek myth given in the Odyssey by Homer. So he provided a very beautiful psychological teaching in this uh, poem, epic poem. So previously we explained Pratyahara, one point in mind. Now we're explaining more about uh, uh, Dharana, concentration. So in the poem, uh, Menelaus is a king of, uh, I believe, king of Sparta, returning with Odysseus and other, or returning with other of his, the, the Achaeans after the war against Troy. So he was stranded on an island without wind on his way home to Sparta, in which he needed to investigate what gods were responsible for, for deterring him from his passage home. And so uh, Idotia, which is the goddess, is a, like a sea goddess, daughter of Proteus on the right, explained to Menelaus that her father was holding, her father uh, was, would be the one to explain how to get home. And so Proteus is, re- is referred to as the prophet and as a sea creature that can transform into any shape or animal, tree, object. What's interesting about Proteus, this is where we get the word protean, or something that changes shape or object or form. So, Idotia advises Menelaus, and Menelaus says, Show me the trick to trap this ancient power, or he'll see and sense me first and slip away. It's hard for a mortal man to force a god. So some island viewer states that one must be very demanding with their inner being. And this is emphasized in the Odyssey. It's hard for a mortal man to force a god. But still, we need to force our god to help us. And I don't mean this in the sense of controlling our being, but I mean this in the sense that when we're meditating, we are so disciplined that we don't let our mind distract us in any circumstance. So the mind changes shape, Distractions emerge in, the, in our thoughts, our emotions, our body, constantly surging in our, in our perception. And we still do not let any of those elements deter us from the object of our concentration. So in order to receive teachings from our being, we need to be very demanding with our God, is what the Master Samael explains. And this is emphasized in the myth of Proteus. So Menelaus and I believe two other men uh, prepared to lay ambush to Proteus, who is bathing at the sea with his seals. Now there was an ambush that would have overpowered us all, overpowering true, the awful reek of all those sea-fed brutes. Who dream of bedding down with a monster of the deep? Meaning uh, they're preparing to, to, you know, attack Proteus, but really they're prepar- someone is prepar- you know, we're preparing to meditate. And we see all these sea creatures in our mind our defects, which smell with lust and are filthy. And it's overpowering. And we feel like we can't, we can't really sit to med- can't meditate because we have so many discursive psychological elements or defects in our mind which are filled with des- lust, specifically. But the goddess Idotia sped to our rescue, found the cure with ambrosia, daubing it under each man's nose. That lovely scent, it drowned the creature's stench. So how do we overcome lust? Is by being chaste, meaning we work with transmutation. So the nose relates to the 
sexual energetic currents, ira, pingala, in our spine, which go up intertwining to our brain. This is the symbol of the caduceus of Mercury. So when we, met, when we transmute, we're bringing that energy up the two channels in our spine through our nostrils. So the fact that Idotia, the sea goddess, a goddess of chastity, places this ambrosia, the transmuted sexual energy, under the nose so that we don't, so that Menelaus does not get overpowered by the stench of his, his own lust. So that he doesn't get petrified like Medusa, as uh, I believe in the myth of uh, Perseus against Medusa. So, in order to really develop concentration, we need to, again, the emphasis is chastity, to transmute when we sit to practice, sublimate our energies so that when we work on our lust, we don't get overpowered by it. But we, with a battle cry, we rushed him, Proteus, flung out arms around him. He'd lost nothing, the old rascal. None of his cunning, quick techniques. First he shifted into a great bearded lion and then a serpent, a panther, a ramping wild boar, a torrent of water, a tree with soaring branch tops. But we held on for dear life, braving it out until, at last, that quick change artist, the old wizard, began to weary of all this. So our being is like that. Or uh, First, the mind is full of distractions and we're continuing to concentrate on our innermost so that through the silence and quietude of the mind, our being will concur to our call. It will come to our aid. But again, if Menelaus didn't have that ambrosia under his nose, he could not have even attempted this because it would have been overpowered by his lust. But instead, by being chased like... Uh, David and Goliath, where David, the soul, takes the stone of Yasod, the sexual power, and with that little stone, he kills the giant. This is the same myth, same meaning. So Menelaus is able to conquer the, his mind, the shape-shifting nature of his mind, in order to communicate with the prophet Proteus. And then Proteus says, now I'm going to explain to you how to get home. And Proteus provides him a lot of help. But only if we are very demanding. We have to force a god, according to this passage that Homer was uh, explaining. So that's the nature of dharana, to concentrate. When we're focusing, and here's the thing, when we focus in meditation, we don't want to let our mind get distracted by other things, but we want to maintain the purpose of our practice. So when we're alone, it's good that we sit, we determine for ourselves what we're going to meditate on. And then when we're meditating, we stick to that practice and not shift and let ourselves waver. We need to be very demanding. If we have a certain point in our exercise, whether it's to meditate and, and annihilate our ego, or to understand the meaning of a scripture, or to understand uh, the nature of uh, a teaching... We have to be firm with our resolve and what we're going to do. Or to communicate with our being, to have a mind that's open and serene. Because usually if we sit to practice, our mind drifts and we forget what we're doing. So the way to resolve that is to, when you sit to practice, determine for yourself what is it that you want to meditate on. Whether it's your being or, or to remember events throughout the day. And that way, as we, are, as we are really courageous in our conquering our mind, Proteus will answer us, okay, you've caught me. You've, you've controlled your mind. Now in, in the silence of your mind and heart, I'm going to teach you. 
And sometimes this can occur if we're meditating, we fall asleep, we go out of our body, and then our being will instruct us. Again, this is a Sufi teaching from al Salah, emphasizing the nature of uh, how to develop willpower, conscious will, Christ's will. And reiterates many of the points that we made. Through the whole night and day, the aspirant does not slacken his endeavors. Outwardly, he has the characteristics of struggle, meaning jihad, to strive. Inwardly, the attributes of endurance. He has separated himself from his bed and bound himself to concentration. For as Prophet Muhammad taught, it's good to lose sleep over prayer. I mean, we didn't meditate in the day, we go home and we're tired and we want to simply knock out. If we take even a few minutes, this is what I do, I sit myself against my bed and I force myself to meditate. And uh, this is the meaning of, he has separated himself from his bed and bound himself to concentration. Meaning we don't let life swallow us whole, but we really dedicate our time to practice every day. He bears difficulties and defies pains. People think it really means physically, but it's psychological. To endure psychological pain when we're uh, facing our difficulties. He treats the ills of his character and applies himself to problems. He embraces terrors and leaves outward appearances. So what does it mean to embrace terror? Master Samuel explains uh, the Divine Mother is the terror of love and law. It's really to embrace the terror of facing the nothingness. Meaning, our ego feels that terror before the majesty of our being as we're learning to separate from our defects through self-observation. And so the ego is terrified and wants to hold on, make us identify so that it can continue living. But instead, we need to leave all outward appearances, illusions, so that we can embrace our Divine Mother and overcome that terror in our, in our mind. For as it is said, then I passed the night in a desert, fearing neither wolf nor lion, overcome by desire, or better said longing, I travel the night quickly. The one who desires or longs continues overwhelmed. So I pass the night in the desert. All of us are in the desert. If we're working in chastity, we enter into our own wasteland. Uh, as it says in Isaiah, uh, a voice that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So by working in, this, in our discipline, we enter the desert where we face the difficulties associated with maintaining our chastity and working psychologically. So I passed the night in the desert, fearing neither wolf nor lion. These are symbols of karma. So in the internal planes, if we experience, a, see a wolf or a lion, a wolf really pertains to regular karma, daily karma for regular persons, everyday persons. But the lion represents a superior type of karma, which we'll discuss later, pertaining to initiates and gods. So I passed the night in the desert, fearing neither wolf nor lion. The karma of my life or my, my circumstances. Overcome with longing, I travel the spiritual night quickly, meaning getting through the darkness of not having that illumination that we all long for. The one who longs for God continues overwhelmed. Meaning strives to continue practicing no matter what. We don't have experiences, we keep practicing. It's like brushing our teeth. We do it because we know it's good for us, even if it's uncomfortable. 
and difficult. But we do it as a force of a habit until eventually that sweetness enters our hearts. So, uh, as it says in the Al-Risalah, um, to uh, you may not feel sweetness in your heart when you practice, but that develops the more you practice. So, uh, I'll conclude with a teaching by Rumi. A new moon teaches gradualness and deliberation in how one gives birth to oneself slowly. Patience with small details makes perfect a large work like the universe. So patience by patience in establishing ourselves in yama, niyama, asana, pranayama, pratyahara, that will aid us in uh, developing or really understanding and practicing meditation. So first develop ethics, chastity, transmutation, silence of mind. We lay that foundation, we'll enter into meditation effectively. What nine months of attention does for an embryo, 40 early mornings will do for your gradually growing wholeness. So if we get up early in the morning, which is difficult, uh, 40 early mornings will do, imagine, you know, nine months, nine represents Yasad in Kabbalah, sexual transmutation. What nine months, of it, so we are born for the number nine, physically, nine months in the mother's womb, but also nine relates to initiation. What nine months of attention does for an embryo, meaning our consciousness, 40 early mornings will do for your gradually growing wholeness. So we see that our consciousness is an embryo at this state. It can develop into a full human being by working with chastity, by working with our divine mother in the womb of uh, her care. you have any Questions? That previous quote when it said the traveler will remain overwhelmed, I don't understand that because it seems like overwhelming is a bad thing. In, uh, in, in Al Risalah, there's another quote or saying that he, uh, the more Gnosis develops tranquility of heart. The more one's gnosis of God, one's direct experience of God, increases, his tranquility increases. Likewise, the more that one knows our being, one knows one, the more we know God, the more awe and reverence we feel. So the type of overwhelmed feeling is not uh, like egotistically we have a problem, you know, we have a problem we have, with work we have to resolve but overwhelmed in this sense me- means to really experience our being and to feel that awe and reverence for the, our own particular light which uh, the more one knows God the more, one, the more overwhelmed or the more awe and reverence one feels as a result of that and that's something we develop little, little by little the more we practice They're, inter- they're integral, we could say. When we uh, 
to develop concentration, we need silence of mind and concentration are so closely interconnected that they're really two aspects of the same thing. And with these stages of meditation, it's not... Um, I mean, as Swami Shivananda pointed out, there are certain progressions that we can make. But the truth is that they are principles that integrate and complement. If we want dhyana, we have to really learn how to concentrate our mind. And concentration, we develop concentration levels. So it's not, these are not set stages of, or plateaus. You reach one level, it goes flat for a while. Instead, it's a fluctuating, constantly dynamic thing. And uh, if we develop more silence of mind, we develop better concentration. We develop better concentration, it means that we're developing greater serenity of thought, meaning that we, we stop, we develop a certain level of equilibrium in our consciousness, in which uh, it's different degrees that I can't say is quantifiable, but it's qualitative. It's a quality in your mind that you'll perceive as a result of practice. But yeah, we could say that the Pratyahara and the Dharana are so closely linked that sometimes in many schools they're considered the same thing. And um, are so uh, closely related that sometimes they've been confused too. But they, they really complement one another. So if you have more concentration... It's because the mind is more silent. So think of, think of concentration like you're on a boat in the middle of a storm. That storm is the mind. And our willpower, we're holding on to the mass of the ship so that we don't fall over, overboard. That mass is our concentration. It's our willpower. But silence of the mind also develops in degrees little by little as the, water, the storm passes, when the waters begin to, equal, uh, to become serene and silent. So that mass also represents your, your spine and how you work with your sexual fire. Because it's the staff of Moses that he wielded to conquer the Egyptians, the egos that we carry inside. And so the, mind, the more we concentrate and focus on our being, moment by moment, the less control our mind has over us. And so that concentration helps us to develop serenity as well. So they feed off each other. They integrate and they complement. But uh, the way that Swami Shivananda emphasizes that, you know, a typical transmission of teaching given in yoga schools, uh, Buddhism as well, I believe, and which uh, explaining the main principles, the, rela- the main relationship between principles. But there's also, uh, it's really one system. But we explain it as elements that complement each other. Something that I'm kind of confused by is um, you had a quote from Shivananda where he says you must do you know the preliminary stuff before there's even a point in meditating. Right. But then there's also quotes I think from Shivananda where he says do not delay the practice of meditation. Right. And I don't really understand how people are expected to do the preliminary stuff if they're not meditating. Like doesn't right. it to kind of have to happen together because I had another Gnostic school say the same thing to me like I wanted to learn about meditation and they said when when you try to do the right thing one day the door will just like open for you but in my experience you have to meditate to be improving in your actions so I find it very confusing 
it fe- the, the reason is they, it feeds off each other. And uh, the way that Shivananda also explained later that we, he said, establish yourself in the preliminaries, but also meditate. Because okay. he emphasized that if you want to have good meditation, you've got to learn how to uh, concentrate, have silence of mind, and develop that together with your, your own ethical discipline. So he says you should, be, you should develop ethics in conjunction with your meditation practice. And uh, it's better if we get established by learning to develop some level of equanimity and ability to concentrate. But it doesn't mean that we don't, we stop there, as you know. It means that we have to uh, develop concentration, develop serenity of mind, and then meditation becomes, and then, and then work in meditation, strive for that. And to, uh, it doesn't mean, you know, even though he says, you know, you want to, you want to start with the preliminaries. He also says elsewhere, when you are meditating, you have to also develop ethical discipline too. So work with the preliminaries while you're meditating and uh, understand that, again, these are not set stages, but they're, it's fluidic and it's more about Acquiring a degree of stability in the mind in order to meditate, in order, in order to receive new information. So that can come to us when we're developing the, you know, we're working in a concentration practice. We get some understanding that comes to our mind like a spark. And that's meditation. When we receive information of something new, that's, that's dhyana. It may happen in an instant and then suddenly the mind is chaotic again. But the more we practice, <clears throat> the more we practice with our ethics with transmutation, with, with uh, prayer, then the higher elements of our discipline will manifest in degrees. So it's good in the beginning that we really dedicate ourselves to establishing those elements, but it doesn't mean that we wait there. But, you know, we could be doing a mantra practice and suddenly we understand something intuitively. So that's dhyana. So that's opening the door. So we need to do both. We need to do both. Uh, but typically, but typically, he said you, you want to. You typically want to get the beginnings set up to be really firm in that, so that when we meditate, then dhyana becomes something more stable. It doesn't come in just flashes, but it comes in a consistent, in a persistent way. The only danger, the only danger, the only danger I know, or the only, the only danger I know is trying to meditate while fornicating. That's what I was wondering. Like, if you are fornicating and then you're also trying to meditate, it must be very confusing to know what. Because here's the thing: if if we're trying to meditate in the middle, basically the mind is a storm, and imagine that boat we're on. Trying to meditate is like holding on to the mast for a few moments and then the next moment punching holes in the deck to let the water in. Yeah. And so you can't, you can't do both. You gotta, we have to decide you know, how to uh, be consistent with practice. Because I know people meditating, trying to meditate for 20, 30 years 
Meanwhile, they're fornicating, and they don't get anything developed. Because Typically, yeah. And uh, to really meditate on lust and meditate on those defects. Because the problem is with trying to, trying to meditate while having no energy is that the mind is just going to be chaotic and destructive. And the way that... And if you're trying to do practice where you're tr- trying to transmute with, an empty, with, empty, with, no, with no energy, meaning if we are trying to pump energy up our spine to our brain meanwhile there's no water to pump not there's nothing happens it's just uh just uh further chaos in the mind the solution for that is to really reflect on chastity and the beauty the beauty and the splendor of purity what it means to be sexually pure psychologically but going back to your original point you know, if we want to um, be successful in meditation, we should have some degree of stability in our asana, our posture, some some level of serenity of mind, a level of concentration. The more we develop those, the easier it is to meditate. But it doesn't mean that we're closed off from experiencing those higher degrees or higher stages. Because somebody can happen, you know, we begin meditating for the first time. It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen as a result of uh, exertion. Like, okay, I did checklist. I did my asana. I did my pratyahara. I did this. Okay, come. And usually we have that type of expectation in our mind. Nothing happens. But if we're just doing our practices indifferently, then that insight can come to us spontaneously. And, uh, that's meditation. We receive new information. But again, if we want to be successful in meditation, the foundation is purity. Yama, yinama. Yama, niyama, basically. To learn more about the knowledge covered in this lecture, we invite you to study the books available through Glorian Publishing or GnosticTeachings.org. You can also view free online courses, lectures, transcriptions, and articles available at ChicagoGnosis.org. All of this is made possible by the support of listeners like you. Have you benefited from this knowledge? Help others by making a tax-deductible donation at chicagognosis.org. We thank you for listening. We hope that these lectures aid you in developing your complete and divine potential. May all beings be happy. May all beings be joyful. May all beings be in peace.